the United States of America is called a Christian nation. Christian nation. Christian nation. It's time for a moment of clarity with your host, Pastor Richard Dietering. Let us pray that this nation does come to a moment of clarity. Faith, faith, faith politics, politics, history, history, and current events. Current events. Now, your host, Pastor Rick. Pastor Rick will be joining you momentarily, but in the meantime, I'm Derek Stone with a moment on sports, part one. The Detroit Red Wings ended their six-game losing streak when they defeated the Chicago Blackhawks 4-3 this past Wednesday. Chicago seized a 2-0 lead in the first period before Detroit rallied to score the next two goals, courtesy of Jake Walk. Wallman and Dylan Larkin, 15 minutes and 41 seconds apart in the middle frame. The Blackhawks regained the lead after 6 minutes and 10 seconds elapsed in the third period, but Lucas Raymond lit the lamp nearly six and a half minutes later, and Dominique Kubalik fired the puck into the net with four minutes and seven seconds remaining in regulation. Six Red Wings players recorded an assist, while Alex Chason accumulated a pair of helpers. In curling news, 18 Canadian men's teams are competing for a grand prize of $100,000 at the Briar Tournament, which takes place through tomorrow. Now here's your Moment of Clarity host, Pastor Rick Dietering. Now, next, Eric, I want to know who won that competition. That's a big prize, really. $100,000. And I could help spend that money. So I need to know next week who won that. (laughs) Good afternoon, folks. I am here. My friends are here. Ed and Phil, how are you doing, Ed? I'm doing fine yourself. Oh, I, I, you know me. I am so good that vitamins should be taking me. That's what a good um, straight man does is give you the pitch to the line. <laughs> yeah, and I'm glad you're straight. That way I don't have to convince you that you're living the wrong life. And <laughs> How's it going, Phil? Yeah, it's going. Now, a, go I ahead. had a heavy day trying to get to, to uh, but I made it. That's beautiful. You did. Unfortunately, you told me that you broke every single law in the world to get here on time. <laughs> Almost. <laughs> you know, it reminds me of, of a car full of uh, elderly ladies driving down 20, uh, you know, M23. Or is that US 23? No, it's back one. Well, uh, going down 23. And uh, police officer pulled him over because uh, they were going extremely slow. And he, he said, hey, ma'am, are you all right? And uh, she says, yeah. And he's looking in the car and there's the other elevator ladies in the car were white and clenching the seats in front of them and the dashboard. And he's like, sure, everything's all right? And she goes, yes. He says, why were you traveling so slow? And she says, don't blame me. Speed limit's 23 miles an hour. <laughs> 
he says, ma'am, that's not that's not the speed limit. <laughs> that That's the side of the road you're on. But what's wrong with the ladies in the seat with you? And she says, oh, we just got off of 275. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Imagine that. Yeah. <laughs> so last night I was doing some light reading. I was sitting down reading uh, uh, the reading Ezekiel and then jumped into the works of Philo. And it got me thinking that I was going to totally change what we're going to talk about today in our show. And next week, we're going to be talking about, uh, and this will be next week, uh, God God willing, uh, if it's in God's plans. Next week's show is going to be talked, uh, we're going to be talking about how um, the left is now referring to us as pronatalists. And we are, we are part of the uh, pronatalism movement instead of pro-life. They actually are saying that pronatalist is actually pro-death. And uh, so we'll get into that next week and just uh, be amazed at how how the left can turn things. That when we want children to live, they say we are pro-death by wanting them to live. Uh, that's next week's conversation. Uh, what we're going to be talking about today, and it's going to be kind of reminiscent when I used to have my dear friend on, Pastor Max. You remember Pastor Max, right, Phil? Oh, yeah. Remember that we I talked about it? Oh, I was just going to say, I had a, a very, very uh, fine feeling for uh, Pastor Max. I, I, I thought he was an incredibly uh, sincere man, and boy, I hope... Uh, I'll get a chance to meet him one day because he knows where he's going. Well, we got to start getting you to church first. If you want to see him again someday, we got to start getting you to church. <laughs> all right. <laughs> so you can find out how, so we can get you the roadmap to go, how to go see him. All right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, you don't have your dear friend that used to bother you every Sunday on your morning show with you telling you to get to church. So now you got me. Uh, <laughs> We're going to be talking about, uh, I'm a professor up at Anchor Bible, and uh, I'm preparing because we're doing uh, the survey of the New Testament, and I get to do a survey of uh, a remarkable gospel, um, what I will call, uh, it's the gospel apart. It's so much different than the other three gospels. And we're going to be talking about the gospel of John. In particular, we're going to spend most of our time talking about uh, the first chapter of John. And we used to do this with Pastor Max once a year. And I thought, well, it's about time it's been more than a few years. The pastor's been gone almost well, over two years. And uh, we haven't done this. So I'm going to talk about John 1. And uh, it's a very moving part. You see, when, when you look at when Jesus was around, when Jesus was on his earthly ministry, when it came to the religious leaders, um, very few of them, it says, believed. Uh, they didn't like his claims to deity. They didn't uh, like the company he kept. They didn't like uh, that he challenged their traditions. And because of those three things, they chose not to believe. And yet we find those that were outside of the leadership that many believed. And yet those who didn't, we can pinpoint to why they didn't believe. It was because of... Uh, Jesus had a lack of conformity to their expectations. They were expecting something different of the Messiah than what they were seeing in Jesus. Um, some didn't like his moral, his moral commands and moral demands on, on society at that time. 
And then you had the whole mob psychology when the church leader said, crucify him, crucify him, got the whole crowd going. You've seen this whole mob mentality going on and uh, turned them away. But even with that, we find that many people still believed that we're not of the um, high religious muckety-muck. And then we had even a few of the high religious muckety-mucks that says, hey, he's got us, we believe. Um, we, we know of a couple of the Pharisees that believe. But John is a little bit different. You see, when you look at John compared to the other gospels, when you look at that, you look at Matthew, Matthew's main point in his gospel, he, even though uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, or Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all pointed to different parts of the humanity of Jesus. To, to Matthew, he was the prophesied king, and he showed uh, that through the prophecies of the Old Testament that Jesus is the prophesied king. And Mark showed him as the obedient servant. And Luke portrayed him as the perfect man. And even though they all had different individual points they were making in the Gospels, they covered a lot of the same ground. Well, with John, it's about 92% original, not covering the same things. And matter of fact, with a total different point in mind, where Mark was taking a prophetic look and, or I'm sorry, uh, Matthew was taking a prophetic look and Mark was taking a practical look and Luke, very much a historical view of Jesus, John took a spiritual view of who Jesus is. And we see that and uh, there's a phrase by uh, William Shakespeare who says, has a statement, everything past is prologue, which means in our lives, everything that has come up to now has, has just been an introduction to the story. And our story starts now. And I think that each and every one of us has it within us because of God to have our stories epic. God is the author and he wants our stories to be epic. And so everything up to now has been prologue. Everything past is prologue. Well, that's what we're gonna look at in John. We're gonna take a look at the prologue. Is John going back um, to set up the story of what he's talking about? And he does that in John 1.1. I think calling it a prologue is absolutely correct. It's just setting up the story of who Jesus is. Um, I was talking to Ed before the show. He found, uh, he found something that's very much not biblical. Uh, matter of fact, as soon as uh, he showed it to me, I, said, I started tearing it apart. But it's still an interesting piece in the fact that even Hollywood can see the, the importance of this prologue. I'll put it that way. Why don't you play that piece? This is, this is in, in a series, and it's a series I do not watch. It's a series called, what's the name of the series? Well, it's called The Chosen. The, and oh. there are people who have some criticism of it, uh, like yourself, but it's extra biblical. It's kind of like backstory stuff. That, so they, they don't veer from, as far as I can see, they don't veer from the gospel. But there's backstory, like who was Matthew and what was his life like? Who's John? And then the story about Peter, where it starts out, is very interesting. And the story about Mary, who was uh, delivered of demons, is is that's just that's episode one, and that's just wonderful. It's whether it's absolutely true that it worked that way, I don't know, but it could. But now, at this 
point in the start of episode, uh, season two, episode one, as I was playing it for you, there's a point where the gospel, the uh, apostles are talking about Jesus, and this is after his crucifixion and death, and they're talking, you know, amongst themselves, how did you get involved? You know, remember this, remember that? And now John is writing. It's interesting, Matthew's writing everything down too, shows him writing everything down because he's very meticulous. Whereas John is now, he's interviewing the other apostles and asking them because he wants to write everything down. And he's explaining it to Mary, the mother of Jesus, why he's doing what he's doing and they're talking about it. And of course he refers to her as mother because Jesus left her in his care. So right now, this is the beginning of the discussion. You know that if you try to write every single thing he did, the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Hmm, a disclaimer. That's good, I'm going to say that. You see, Mother, if I do not write these things down, they will be lost to history. James would agree. Where will you start? In the beginning, naturally. I'm just um, not sure which beginning. His birth. Earlier. His ancestry. I'm pretty sure Matthew has that covered. <laughs> Maybe the prophecies, the promise to Abraham. I thought about starting with Abraham, but still so much came before him. What was before Abraham? Noah. And before him? A garden. Well, we could start there. But I wanted to be known that he was much more than what could be seen or, or touched. What was before the garden? In the beginning, the earth was formless and void. hear it without thinking of you too. I cannot believe how much he put up with others. They will not even remember the sound of his voice. They'll just be words. He said they weren't just words, remember? Heaven and earth will pass away. But, but my, my words, words will never, never pass away. They're eternal. So, That's it. Yeah. So I, I could spend I could spend the hour telling why I totally disagree with the way they portrayed a lot of that. However, but he did like that. disclaimer. They did they did put their disclaimer. Uh, and John in the movie that you know uh, if he, he can't put everything down because they wouldn't do it. One of the main purposes of John is writing so people could believe. I would say that this prologue, uh, verses one through eighteen, is uh, one of the most interesting passages in the New Testament. And if you look at the first five verses of it and the last five verses of that prologue. Uh, it's about creation. Now, 
there's a lot of people who would argue that he wrote this gospel to write or to fight against Gnosticism that was going around at that time within the Christian faith. And I, I will say that this book does have a lot of a lot in it that goes against Gnosticism. But I don't think that's really the purpose of this book. We go through this book and we find out, whereas when we look at who Matthew was writing to, he was writing to a select group, and then he was writing to the Hebrews to show that he was the prophesied Messiah. Mark was writing to the Romans to show them that he was the obedient servant. And Luke, he was he was writing basically to the Greeks. Who was John writing to? My argument is is that it was not, as some would say, just to the the Jewish Greek speaking Jews. He was writing to the whole world, and we see that in a number of places. We see that in all the whosoever verses, and we see that where he talks about those in the world that believe. So it's a worldwide book, and we have to remember, John wrote this late in life. He was pretty much the last standing apostle. Well, he wasn't pretty much. He was the last standing apostle. And we we look at him as taking over the church, being the elder of the church that Paul has started. But we have to remember, he was the last apostle. He was the overseer of all the churches, the last standing apostle. So the, the churches that Thomas would have started in James, and who had definitely been long since crucified, or I'm sorry, had his head be taken off. Um, all these worldwide churches, he was the last standing apostle. Yes, Ed, go ahead. Uh, that would put him over the church in Rome then also? Yeah. The church that Paul started? Or, or, the, or the Peter, wait a minute, how'd that happen? Never mind. All right, so <laughs> try, trying to distract me into another conversation. I'm not going to go there. I'm not okay. going to fight. I'm going to stay on John 1.1. 1, 1. Hey, may, uh, I, may I interject a little bit here? Yeah. You've described the target audiences of the Gospels, and and it's it's pretty impressive that there's so many different ways you can look at this. And I've also heard it said that uh, uh, Matthew described uh, Jesus as a Jew, Mark, to the uh, to the Jews, Mark to the Romans, that uh, that Luke was uh, to the Greeks, but also was describing Jesus as a man. So it was like the Matthew was the servant, and Mark was the king, yeah. And then John was the uh, I'm sorry, Luke was the man, and the then John was was son of God or no, God. Son of God. I'm sorry, son of man in Luke and son of God in John. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, hope I didn't distract you too much. No. It allowed me to find my get get back in my notes somewhere. <laughs> oh, so you weren't listening? That's okay. Uh, that's no. <laughs> and and I, I want to talk a little bit about John one one in a different context, kind of like the Gospels are in different contexts. The words are the same as when Max and I talked about them, but I want to point this out in a different context because the, our Jewish friends say that we are polytheistic; that our view of the Trinity is polytheistic and therefore it goes against their faith. And I will argue that the John 1.1 actually at one point could have been taught in the Hebrew synagogues and fully, fully accepted. Uh, when we, we go back and we look at uh, the, the Targum, 
Now, Ed, do you know what the Targum is? Just real quick. Uh, not not really. clearly. Yeah, the Targum was an Aramaic version. It was like the NIV version of the Bible in Aramaic. All right. That inaccurate, huh? Uh <laughs> well, what I mean by that, it was it was written in a way that was designed to be translated into Aramaic for the Aramaics to understand it. Okay, More like the message. Yeah, could we can go with that? Uh, and I offend less people that way. When when we look at the when we look at the passage of John one one, it starts out in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Now, anyone who reads this, um. Well, here, when you hear that in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God, you, your mind automatically hears an echo of what book? What comes to mind well, to Genesis. you? Genesis. Genesis, right. Everyone, when they first hear that verse, uh, the first thing they go to is their mind goes into Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But what some don't realize is that in some of the Aramaic tradition, in the Targums, where the Hebrew Bible is uh, interpretively translated into Aramaic, the language of Jesus, uh, you've got to remember, this is the language Jesus spoke was Aramaic, and as well as his contemporaries in Galilee, they spoke Aramaic. Genesis 1-1 is translated in the Targums in, in, in these words. In the beginning, there's a couple of different ways they do it. In the beginning, the word created the heavens and the earth. Others say, in the beginning, the word of God created the heavens and the earth. All right. So you see it in the Targum. That is the word created the heavens and the earth. Or some say the word of God created the heavens and the earth. Now, I told you last night I was doing some light reading. I was reading some of the works of Philo. He was a Jewish philosopher, so shall we say. He was... Uh, very, very much involved. Very Hellenized, very Greek. He is very Greek and Hellenized, but, and again, I'm not using them uh, as in any way, shape, or form as being biblical. It's extra biblical. <laughs> you get on me helpful. for the chosen and then you quote Philo, but go ahead. Yeah, well, in this case, I'm trying to show what the Jewish belief was of, of the word at yeah. the time of Jesus. All right, that's this is what they believed at that time. I'm not going to give credit to Hollywood in believing anything, all right? <laughs> I just won't do that. Um, Philo, Excuse me, The Chosen is not a Hollywood production, by the way. It well, is not. Okay, it's close enough. Okay. Okay. Right. <laughs> uh, so here's how Philo looked at the word. Uh, I want you to consider uh, these statements that we find in some of the writings of uh, Philo of Alexandria. The speculations regarding uh, the Logos in particular, the word. Um. He uses, uh, and the word he uses, I'm going to read from my notes here. And the word he that he uses when he says logos is just that in the Greek, logos, which usually means, by the way, word or concept or, or reason. And he's, according to Philo, he says, God has with, within him, listen, God has within him two powers. These two powers are resident in the divine logos. Therefore, According to Philo, the Logos may, in fact, be called God and Lord. Now, that's a very interesting statement by him. His ideas elsewhere suggest that uh, there may well be a plurality within the Godhead. He, in fact, 
uh, in his writings called In Questions and Answers of, on Genesis in book number two, commenting on Genesis six, he states, the second God who is the Logos. That's, that's amazing from a Jewish perspective, the second God. And if you look at the Greek, uh, Greek text, it's ton uh, deuterantheon, the second God who is the Logos, the Logos Ekenu, the Logos of that, of that one. That's a huge statement coming from a revered Jewish philosopher who studies and gets into the, I gotta go. We'll be back after these messages. Pastor Richard Dietering on Wham. Pastor Rick will be joining you momentarily, but in the meantime, I'm Derek Stone with another moment on sports. 35 years ago today, the Detroit Pistons destroyed the Phoenix Suns 116 to 88. The Worm, Dennis Rodman, surprisingly led all scorers with 21 points, plus he snagged 15 rebounds and blocked four shots. Adrian Dantley, the Microwave, Vinnie Johnson, the Captain Isaiah Thomas, Rick Mahorn, Joe Dumars, and Bill Lame Beer also recorded double-figure point totals for the Pistons. Dantley nailed 10 free throws as part of his grand total of 16 points. Johnson accumulated 14 points and dished out 7 assists. Thomas and Mahorn each contributed 13 points. Dumars amassed 11 points and distributed six dimes, and Lane Beer buried five shots that yielded 10 points. Now here's your Moment of Clarity host, Pastor Rick Dietering. That's right, that's right, I'm sad and blue, cause I can't do the boogaloo. I'm lost, I'm lost, can't do my thing, and that's why I sing the gimme gimme ding ding. Silent breed is people! We've got to stop him. Come on. Sing it one more time, Mama. Uh, so I'm talking about Milo and some of the writings, what he had to say about the work. Uh, and there's a purpose I'm doing this. I'm also going to get into another. I talked about the Targum. I'm now talking about Philo. Elsewhere in uh, Philo's writing, and this is uh, from his uh, tractate on the meaning of dreams. He says that the title God or Theos is given to his word, his principle logos. And yet in another place, he talks about God's word, God's logos is the man after his own image. So now we see that Philo's teaching that the logos is going to come as a man. And that's in his uh, tractate on the confusion of languages. Um, and yet in another one of his tractates, he says that the word of God, Logos Theo, through whom the world was framed, the preposition he uses there is dia. And that reminds us of what John says in his prologue 1.3. All things came into existence through dia, through him. So we, we get that repeat. So through, through 
Philo the Alexander would have been welcome to teach in any synagogue, by the way. He would have been completely welcome to teach in any synagogue in Israel or in Alexandria. But uh, a book that I'm sure that Ed will recognize when I talk talk about it uh, was uh, written in 180 BC by a guy by the name of Sirach. Um, some people call his book Ecclesiasticus. Um, he writes regarding uh, the word, he says uh, to this parallel, if you allow me just to read uh, a few verses from Sirach, the author uh, invites us to hear the praise of wisdom. He's, he's praising wisdom in the presence of the heavenly host. Wisdom personified uh, explains. And what he writes is, I am the word, I am the logos, which was spoken by the most high by God. It was I who covered the earth like a mist. My dwelling place was in the heaven. My throne was in a pillar of cloud. You know what pillar of cloud that's talking about? That would have been the ones in Exodus, the pillar of cloud. Then the creator decreed where I should dwell. He said, make your home in Jacob, find your heritage in Israel. So the idea of the word being a man and dwelling amongst Israel was not a new concept to the Jews. This teaching would have been welcomed in Jerusalem back at the time of Jesus. Now, this is really important on this. Encyclopedia Britannica, which is also not what we will say uh, scriptural, it is not, it is not no mean inspired, but the Encyclopedia Britannica says this, logos, the Greek word for reason or plan or word, uh, the plurals logoi, in ancient Greek philosophy and mythology, the early Christian and early Christian theology, the divine reason implicit is the cosmos, ordering it and giving it form and meaning. In other words, the word is what created the universe. So this is uh, something that even the Greeks would have understood, whether it be the Greek pagans or the Greek philosophers, they would understand that this this is the this word is the cause of creation. The philosophers just referred it to as a logos. The, the concept of Greek mythology or Greek pagan is this was a God that didn't really have a name. Oh, that should bring Acts to mind real quick. <laughs> so that was this cause of the universe being created. And then what even breaks even more in all the churches that we talked about, all the other apostles going through in their religious systems already, in India and Egypt and in Persia all had the same concept of the word. So John is saying, I am telling to all the people out there, this concept you have in your mind of this logos, that is Jesus. He's speaking to the whole world. That is Jesus that's being talking to. The Jews understood what he was saying. The Greeks understood what he was saying. The Persians, the Egyptians, uh, they understood. The Indians understood what he was saying. It was a concept they already had. And he's saying this word, this concept, this Jesus is God. That word in the beginning was the word and the word was with. That word with in Greek has so many different means. It means to, it comes from the root word uh, in the Greek uh, to mean face to face. It's used often in Greek uh, writings outside of the Bible to mean it was someone who is looking at their own reflection as in a mirror, to be, to be attached to what you're looking at. And the word became flesh. 
And then we see through that whole creation that everything that there is was created through him. John is saying without any problem that Jesus is God. Now, the Gnostics today try to argue with that. They'll say, well, he doesn't use the word ho there for in front of Theos. He doesn't say, and Jesus was the God. Therefore, he, he's just a God. Well, <laughs> Bible also says, if you're not a true God, you're a false God. <laughs> so is Jesus a false God? Uh, the cult won't admit to that. They won't say he's a false God. They can't because he is God. And the fact that the the article the Lord is one is not there. Yep. The, and we're gonna let you recite that here in a second. The yeah. the 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 word the 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 definite article, the Greeks are less the Greek language is less fanatic about the use of the article the than we are in English. It's almost a point where they don't often use it, but if they do, fine, but it's not required within their language. It's almost um in the way <laughs> to them. They don't use it every place that I would say is English. We are more, more emphatic about the use of it than the Greeks and the English language isn't even that emphatic about it. So you can't use that. John is making the argue throughout the whole, the whole passage, this whole gospel that Jesus is God. There's a number of verses, the great I am verses that we see um, throughout. He builds his whole gospel on certain things. He builds his gospel on, on seven signs, seven miracles that you might believe. He builds his gospel on the seven I am's, I am statements that he makes. He, is the, he says, I am the vine, I am the door, all the I am statements. And then there's a couple of places where he actually refers to himself. And I'm saying a couple of places, because if you look where he says, I am, You'll see the word he, I am he, you know, um, you're going to find out those word he's are going to be italicized. And uh, you know what it means when the words italicized in the Bible, don't you, Ed? It's uh, added. Yeah. In the original text. Right. That's exactly what it means. It means they added it, hopefully to make it more clear. But when you look at those I am he statements, oh, it, it really makes a big difference when you're reading it. To just say, read it the way they, they are reading it. Because you find out that most of the time where he says, I am, the religious muckety-muck get really upset at him because he's making himself equal to Yahweh. And he says, also in John, he gives the five witnesses. And one of those witnesses he gives is Moses. And he says, and Moses wrote of me. Right? Who did Moses write about? I am. I am. Who shall I say sent me? I am. Right. So you have a wonderful verse you wanted to share in the Hebrew, and I think it would be perfect. Go ahead and read it now. Oh, it's just the, the, the Shema. Uh, Hear, O Israel. Huh? Thank you for saying it right. Oh, okay. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. And so this is why they have a tendency to reject the thought of, you know, a son of God or that it's blasphemous. You know, to go back to the chosen again, it's it's quite interesting to watch Nicodemus come to the realization that that Jesus is God. And he has this whole problem that you're describing. He, you know, as a chief Pharisee, he has a real problem with it. 
But how he reconciles it when he's talking to John the Baptist in the stupid movie, which is, you know, extra biblical. Mm-hmm. It's 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 quite instructive. Yeah. Well, you know, the, and I, I'm glad they're actually putting, trying to put some truth into it. <laughs> well, you watch it and then get back to me, okay? Because I'm skeptical about some of it. And I'm certainly skeptical about season three because of what I heard were a lot of Mormon influences in the in the financing of the film, if nothing else. Yeah. So that that, that that's just a brief overview of John one one. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Yeah. Go ahead, Ed. Well, you've got all the well, Philo. I reject Philo right out of you know right out of hand because he has no more. Let me finish, okay? I just he's just extra biblical himself, and I think he's trying to make a construct to keep Greeks and Jews happy, but. My simple, and I mean, I do mean this simple interpretation of of uh, John. In the beginning was the word, and and the word has so many different connotations. Your word can be the written word. It can be your promise. In the word was the promise, and the word and the promise was Jesus was with God, and the word was God, and Jesus was God. And then we know that the whole Bible is nothing but a descript is the word of God and it does nothing but describe Jesus. That's the whole purpose of it is, you know, everything is a type, an archetype of Jesus. So when I read this, I, I can make it a lot simpler in my mind just by saying that as I did, the word is is the promise that was given to Adam and Eve that a deliverer would come. And that promise was made before, long before creation was made, that promise was, God knew he was going to have to provide that deliverer long before Adam fell or Eve. Well, I'm going to say promise is actually cutting that really short of what that word means. Oh, I understand that, but it's just a simple, simple understanding of it that helps me. That's all. Oh, okay. Uh, I'll let you have that. (laughs) I'm talking about it, right? Um, So... If I go to, let me get to that passage. Oh, it's easier to just go to this one. I want to read it all. And what I find really, and again, I am not going to the extra biblical books to show proof of what John is saying. I think the Bible itself, John John 1, is the divine word of God and does say that Jesus is that word and that he became flesh, all right? And... Which in itself is interesting because he's saying it's God, but then it says he became flesh. And then throughout John, we do see the suffering of the man, Jesus. We see the the compassion of the man, Jesus. We see these human attributes, but he's still God. You know, and, and we see him go through the crisis of his passion and everything else. But yet he's still God. I think the best way to put this is that just like there's two sides of every coin and, and both sides are valid to that coin. The, the humanity of Jesus and the deity of Jesus are two sides of the same coin, both valid, both there. And, uh, but the reason I use those extra biblical sources is not to give credence to what God is saying. God, what God is saying is perfect in itself. The reason I use Sirach and the reason I use Encyclopedia Britannica, uh, the reason I used um, Philo, was to show that this concept was already within them. Romans tells us that we all believe in God in our own way, but we reject him. That this, and this is proof 
of, of that statement in Romans, that it was already within them, this knowledge of this word. The one thing that they can all unify on is who is this, could unify if they were smart, would be Jesus. So it's just showing that the idea of the word, the construct of what John is writing is so brilliant in the way that it can say, the rest of the world knows what I'm talking about when I talk about Jesus being the word, and now they're accountable. As a translator, that's exactly what you're doing here. You're looking at contemporary uses of the word to see how it was understood when it was written. Similar to what we do with the constitution when we look at originalism, but you wanna see what, what were people thinking when they heard that word at that time, not what right. we think today. Right, and, and that's all I-, I That's think, what you meant well, to say, isn't it? That, that's, well, actually, that's what I say often in my hermeneutics class when I teach hermeneutics is it's important to get to the original context of it. How did the people understand it when they heard it? And uh, so you're exactly right on that. This is something we have to look at the histor historical events going on around. Now, I will say that um, Encyclopedia Britannica was not around at the time of Jesus, but they're, they're reflecting back on beliefs at that time. And so we have to understand how those who are reading it would have read it and understood it. And my argument is that the Jews have no excuse to deny John 1 at all because it was within their belief system at that time. They have since rejected the concept of the word. They have since rejected of these residents in God that are God themselves, you know, itself um, because they want to deny the Messiah. You know, that's part of the fallacy of creating a God in your own, in your own image because they reject, they reject Jesus because he doesn't meet the image that they had constructed of what Messiah would be or, or of God. And so when the truth comes along, they can't break that mold. That's, that's part of the problem. You have to be flexible in your mind and say like, hey, fresh data, you know, I, I may have been wrong. Well, I kind of I like would put it this way is, Roman points out that the unbeliever is without excuse. And, and I think by looking at the belief systems of those around in the known world at the time, really hits home to that fact. They're without excuse. They already had this concept. Now it's laid out to who that word is and why. The whole gospel is around building that out. John said he wrote the gospel so that you would believe, right? One of the one of the key key verses in John, and I think this is a key verse that that speaks to the whole Bible, would be in John four, where he's talking to the woman at the well, and he says, "And the Father is seeking for such to worship Him in spirit and truth." I think that speaks to the, from gen, the beginning of Genesis to the end of Revelation. The whole point is, is he's searching for this relationship to be reconciled between him and humanity, those who he created, and to have that humanity worship him in spirit and truth. And to do that, we have to understand who was carrying that message, and that was God himself, Jesus. Yeah, there are things that Jesus did that, you know, even the Jews, well, you know, only God could do this. Right. You know, when God, when when Jesus said, your sins are forgiven, forgiven, he did that as a trigger 
You know, like, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. You know, the Jews, the, the Pharisees are listening and they're going like, how dare you? He says, well, which is easier, forgive sins or to heal? You tell me, who can do both? Yeah, and he does both. That, what's really fun about that is when he said that, the Pharisees were in a jam-packed room. It was kind of like a mosh pit uh, where, I mean, the people had to tear off a roof to lower a sick man down. I mean, it was so crowded, you couldn't even get in the windows. So they were in this small area where they had to hear him say that. And he knew immediately what was in their hearts when they said only God can forgive sins, you know? And he didn't say, hey, I'm not God. I'm doing it. He says, what is it easier for me to do? To heal him or for, say you're forgiven? And then he healed him, saying they're both true, you know? The, the whole message, the whole message that Jesus was going around, and we see this in the gospels, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, is his gospel was the kingdom of God is at hand, which means the authority of God is here. Who is that authority of God? Jesus Christ. Yeah. You mentioned Romans and that we're without excuse because all nature, all creation shows us that there's a creator. I mean, that's the word we use. Creation implies creator. And so that's step one to become convinced there's a God. In my walk, that's what it took. I was raised a certain religion. I rejected that. It had no power. But when I was convinced there was a God, then I went on a journey to find him. And then I became convinced there was Jesus was representative of that God, that Christianity was the true religion. Today, we have so many people who are unconvinced of there being a God. Thus, there is no right or wrong. We have to bring this culture to the point where they accept that there is a God so that, I mean, that's what secularists do. Atheists say, oh, there's no God, so I can do whatever I want to do. And so how do you even talk to them? But once you convince them that there is a God, then you can start to show them that Jesus is that God. Because if there is a God, if you just read about Jesus, you say, well, that's all fairy tales because there is no God. But once you convince there is a God, then you got to look at, well, who is it? Which God makes the most sense? And it's not going to be the one that's, you know, the thuggy deity and all that stuff. You know, it's going to be this guy. I'm going to reach over into my one bookshelf here. Hold on. Don't strain yourself. Yeah, I got to. Um, There's a book. That is absolutely fantastic. It was written by uh, Dr. J. Edwin Orr. Are you familiar with him at all? Ed? Dr. Orr, um, theologian, he believed, he took the example of John. If you look at John, John is written in a way anyone who reads it can understand it. And yet he lays out everything in logical arguments. John, you can break it down. You can look at the rhetoric, something I study very strong in all the biblical texts. He lays it out in a ways, very simple ways that everyone can understand. And yet he he writes in the Jewish style of parallelism, unequated to any of the other gospel writers. Um, he he's absolutely fantastic in his logic when he lays out his arguments. Well, William Orr or, or Edwin Orr took that concept of saying I need to be able to commute uh, communicate very intense theological ideas in simple languages. So he wrote a bunch of small little handbooks like I'm holding up in front of that John and or that Ed and uh, Phil can see. It's just little tiny booklets that he would write. And he wrote this one book called The Faith That Persuades. And in that book, he says that we as Christians all have it within us um, to explain the faith that's within us, to, to spread the gospel. We have it within us to do so once we are saved. And he uses this argument as a great book. I, I recommend it to all. It's called The Faith That Persuades. 
um, that we have the ways to communicate. Your argument of saying today they don't believe in God, they don't believe in right and wrong. I have not found a single person yet who said there is no right and wrong. And I've had people say that where in the end you could prove to them that they do believe that there is right and wrong. <laughs> All right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it just takes a conversation. So they do believe in right and wrong. They just don't want to believe the right and wrong uh, that holds them accountable, that holds them accountable. So you just yeah. have and that's the thing. And you just have to say, if there is right and wrong, you've already admitted, then you you have to admit that you're accountable to the right and wrongs, at least to the ones you <laughs> recognize. All right. right. You have to hold yourself to that, to those right and wrongs. So let's build on that. And that's what we have to do is we got to build on those right and wrongs. Is it wrong to take an innocent life? Would it be wrong for me to take your life? You're an innocent person. Would it be wrong for me to take it? Of course it would be wrong. Okay. I agree. So, <laughs> folks, you have a blessed day. Next week, we will be talking about pronatalism and how we're destroying the world. Have a blessed day. You've been listening to a moment of clarity on Wham Talk 1600 with your host, Pastor Richard Dietering. Be sure to tune in again next week right here on Wham Radio.